Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. You have a copy of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Bibles provided there by the church, I believe it's on page 1068, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin in a moment in verse number 19. And as you know, it's now over four full months of shutdowns, quarantines, and staying away and staying home and limiting us from anything that someone has deemed non-essential. And if you listen to the media and some of those in power, it may never end, uh, or at least not until November. So the question is, if that's the case, uh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? started writing this message, and it was a statement, but as it's studied it over the weekend and continued to think about it, it's become a question. And the question is, is it time? Is it time for those of us who are gathering here, and I certainly appreciate those of you who are gathering weekly, is it time for us to look at how we can do more ministry than just what we're doing now? Those of you who watch by Facebook and watching by YouTube, is it time for you to gather with the body? I know some have health concerns, and some of you have had doctors that tell you to stay home, and you ought to follow your doctor's orders if your personal physician has told you to do that. But what I'm going to do today is ask all of us to ask the Lord. I've been asking the Lord. I'm asking you to ask the Lord. You know, sometimes we just listen to what's told us. We've been spending a lot of time listening to Fauci and Grouchy and Hansel and Gretel and whoever else is in charge up there. We spent a lot of time listening to them. But how much time have we asked the Lord? Have we come and asked the Lord, Lord, is it time for us to gather, more of us gather and return to worship and return to the hearing of God's Word and to the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst as a congregation? The passage we read today puts a premium on drawing near to God in corporate worship. So Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to begin reading verse number 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see, the day approaching. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of our God will endure. And this is the word of God. Well, we see, as we look at our world, we see our government limiting what churches can do, many times more than they limit what businesses can do. We hear people who think it's selfish to gather in worship and not protect our lives by staying home and not protect other lives by staying home. And quite honestly, we do not and should not expect the unsaved world to value the church. We should not expect unsaved people to value worship. We should not expect 
people who don't have the mind of Christ to understand the value of the corporate ministry, the corporate gathering of the church. In fact, the Bible tells us why, because they don't have the mind of Christ. Romans 8 tells us a little bit about this. Look what it says, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, the carnal mind doesn't think on the things of the, of the Spirit. The carnal mind has no ability to do that. The fleshly mind, all it looks at is things is just worldly and practically with no value of what God says in His Word at all. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural unsaved man, even our own natural selves without the Spirit, cannot really receive the things of the Spirit of God. They, we don't value the things of the Spirit of God in our natural man. It takes God living in us. It takes the blood of Jesus washing us. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then God's Word becomes a precious treasure to us and the things of God become precious to us. In fact, while we can't expect the world to do that, we must expect, we do expect, and we have a right to expect those who know Jesus and claim to know Jesus to value and appreciate spiritual things. We have a right to expect people who claim to be saved to value and appreciate the church and worship and the Word of God. Now, I know many of you do. You're here today, and you do, and many watching do. But it saddens me that I see it across Facebook and other places and even in, in our church, people who seem to have a lack of urgency about getting back to church. And the argument is, well, we have online church, and we should be cautious, I understand that, but let me just tell you, online church is a cheap substitute for in-person worship. It's synthetic. This is real. Online worship, you can learn some things, but God designed the church to gather. He designed to be in the midst of His people. And when His people meet, God meets with them. In fact, the New Testament word for church is ecclesia. It's a word that means called out or out of, and, and it also means into an assembly. So the church is this called out assembly. You and I are the called out people of God. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says it this way, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now look at this, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. That's a reason to worship God. See, we were called out of darkness into light. We were called out of sin into salvation. We were called out of ourself into Christ. We were called out of the world into the body. God called us out. He summons us to come to him and be a part of his people. So with that in mind, I want to talk about six reasons why we ought to examine this question, is it time? Is it time for us to do more? Is it time for some of us who are watching to come gather? Number one, is it time to live by faith over fear? 
You can live by faith or you can live by fear, but you cannot live by both. Not simultaneously. You can't live in faith and live in fear. Now, you can live in faith and have some fears because we all have fears. But you live by faith and you overcome your fears by faith. Now, this is not to say that Christians don't have a fear. Christians give their fears to God. That man of great faith, George Mueller, we've studied about him before. Stu talked about him just recently in our Bible studies on Thursday night. He said this, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. When I give my life to God and I give something to God, some issue to God, uh, I I trust Him and He's going to take my anxiety about it and help me deal with it. And I have to do that all the time just like you do. And when I begin to live by faith, my anxiety is pushed down. And when I begin to allow anxiety to rise up, my faith is pushed down. Now in this passage of Scripture, He's talking to some people that had anxiety about their faith. The Hebrews were facing and had faced persecution. Now in verse 23, look what he says to them. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These people are facing persecution. They had faced it before. They were being pressured to renounce Christ. They were Jewish Christians and their Jewish people around them were urging them to leave Judaism, to give that up and to come back to uh, Judaism and to walk away saying Jesus isn't the Messiah and and they had suffered now they had already suffered for their faith when they first got saved they suffered look at down at chapter 10 verse 32 look there at this passage with me so look what he says verse 32 but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings what he's saying is think back When you first got saved, when God opened your mind, God opened your heart, you saw the truth, you endured great suffering. These people came at you right away, but you endured. Verse 33, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So he said you suffered because you you lined up with the group of people that were suffering. These other Christians were suffering. You said, I believe. Now you all started to suffer. But look, it gets even better. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. They took their stuff from them for being Christians. They confiscated their stuff. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That means they they treasure Jesus more than the world's treasures. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you have, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Yet, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. See, these people had already suffered for being Christians. But the suffering had continued on through their Christian life. And guess what? They were getting weary. Anybody getting weary of all this? They were getting weary. They had suffered at the start. They did good because they were fired up. They They were grateful to be saved. It was important to them. But time wore on and months wore on and years wore on. And some people started abandoning the church and giving up and going back. And so there was all this great, this great struggle 
They knew other people had, had suffered. In matter of fact, in chapter 12, he tells them, you haven't endured yet to the point of bloodshed, which they're probably going to soon, he's, he's telling them, but endure. The writer of Hebrews knew these people were discouraged. They were growing weary. They were in danger of giving up. So his word to them is hold fast. That word means uh, to hold tightly. It means to fortify. It actually speaks of being in a fortress. And he says, hold fast your confession of hope. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because the one who's promised us is faithful. And I know there's some of us are losing hope in this whole situation. There's some of us sitting home. We're losing hope. We're losing hope that anything's going to change. Matter of fact, some of us before COVID, we had a lot of things going on and we're losing hope that God's ever going to do anything. See, fears tears down the fortress of faith. But we must look to Jesus if we will endure. Look over in chapter 12. You have your Bibles. Just flip over to chapter 12 very quickly. Look what it says in verse number 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now look, who for the joy that was set before him endured, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We must look to Jesus. If we look too much around us, our faith will falter. The media posts all these numbers, these stories of doom and gloom, and we get overwhelmed by it. And if you listen to the news media, you think everybody's got COVID. Listen, let's get some facts. I like facts. I found out a lot of people don't, but I do. In Kansas, nine-tenths of one percent of our population has COVID. Ninety-three people out of every 100,000 has been diagnosed at one point or another with COVID. Twelve one-thousandths of one percent, 350 people, one out of every 100,000 have died of COVID. In Wyandotte County, three-tenths of one percent has been affected, infected with COVID. Six one-thousandths of one percent, 93 people, I think, as of yesterday, have died of COVID. That seems like a lot of people to some people. Out of 2.9 million people, 93 people are not a lot of people. In fact, Kansans abort more babies in one month than, we, than COVID has killed the whole time. Now they, listen, we're listening to the people who have deemed that was essential, but this is not. During this period of COVID, Kansans have aborted roughly 2,350 babies during that time. In the U.S., you know, everybody tells you the U.S. is, is, is infected, everybody's got it. 15 one-hundredths of 1% 1 have COVID in the United States. The death rate's five one-thousandths of one percent. If you're not a math major, let me translate. It's really low. That's what it means. That's, that's what it is. Would you want five one-thousandths of your paycheck? No. <laughs> the devil uses this stuff. He creates an atmosphere of fear all across the world and all across our land. 2 Corinthians 2.11, remember we read this verse, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, and one of his devices is fear. He is the sinister minister of fear. He will use deception. He will spread truths, half-truths, misinformation. He will give us half the story, but not all the story. You ever notice no one talks about how many people have recovered from COVID? If you ever look it up, it's pretty 
a pretty high number of people have actually recovered from it. A lot more than have actually died from it. So what have Christians done in the past? You know, this isn't the only pandemic in the world, in world history. And there's a lot of pandemics, epidemics have happened through the history of the world. But what have Christians done in the past? Well, in the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Empire was hit with a devastating epidemic. Some medical historians actually believe it was the first appearance of smallpox in the Western world. Whatever it was, and they're still not sure, it was lethal. As many contagious diseases are when they go into uh, an area that people have been unexposed, and particularly in their day when they had no idea what was going on and no medicine. Listen, this epidemic lasted 15 years. It lasted in the Roman Empire 15 years. I know this feels like it's been 15 years, but it's not been 15 years. Okay? 15 years. Somewhere, and they, and they don't know how many people actually died of it. We don't know how many people actually died of it. What are we talking about? We, I'm going to tell you that they, they estimate between a third and a fourth of the Roman Empire died from this disease. And people say, well, look at us. We don't know how many died from it. I mean, people died with COVID. People, people died of COVID. People had a car wreck and COVID caused it. Whatever. <laughs> that happens. But listen, listen to what this man said. This, this ruler, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman ruler, by the way, he actually died of it. But he said, he wrote of caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. No one knew how to treat the stricken, nor did most people try. During this time, there was a famous physician named Galen. He fled Rome. And, and he went to his country estate and he stayed sequestered until everyone had passed. I guess he stayed out of town for 15 years. But there were those who couldn't flee. So what did they do? Well, most people avoided anyone they knew that had it. They avoided most people. They stayed to themselves for a long, long period of time. But you know what the Christians did? The Christians cared for the sick. There were no hospitals like we have. There was no medical system there was no proliferation of medical technology like we have the christians cared for people christians cared for christians and non-christians and some christians died from this because they cared for those with this and god saved numerous lives because the christians cared for them and in fact this took faith it took courage it took mercy it took compassion and God honored it because God gave great favor to the church all across the Roman Empire because these people acted by faith. All through history, by the way, Bible history and world history, Christians have risked their lives to obey God. There's plenty of examples in your Bible. We love Daniel in the lion's den. Well, you know, Daniel risked his life to pray. I love that story. We get the lion's den part. Let's go back. Daniel risked his life to pray. And all through the Bible, people did this. And matter of fact, you have your Bibles open. Flip over to chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. You want to talk about living by faith? Look at verse 35. In the first part of this section, he's talking about all those who won victory. And he ends it in verse 35 with this phrase, Women received their dead, raised to life again. Hallelujah. But then he switches. There were those who had faith and they didn't get the outcome they wanted. Look, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. These people lived out the faith. Today when we gather in this place, there are Christians who will gather not afraid of COVID. Their real fear is they might be arrested or beaten or beheaded because they gathered. And they will still gather. They gather in secret places and they risk the fact when they let someone new in, that someone new is a spy. But they will gather. And they will still tell others. And they will still reach out to them. Now, I know people say, well, is it worth the risk of COVID to come to church and to do other things? Well, let me ask you, when will it be worth the risk? Do we go to work? Is it worth the risk? Do we go to the ball fields? Or there are going to be kids on the ball field and they're going to be there. They're already there. If church and worship and obedience and faith are not worth the risk with, when there's such little risk, will it certainly be worth the risk when we know there is great risk? Folks, I have to ask the question, is it time for all of us, those watching and us here, to live by faith over fear? I'm not denying the virus is real. It's real. People die from it. People get it. But folks, we just may have to learn to live with it. We just may have to learn that we got to go by faith. God sent me. This is why I'm asking you to sincerely pray about it. Pastor Don's not sending you. God's calling us to ask him what is his will for this. It reminds me of the text we looked at a few weeks ago. Isaiah 43. Verse 1 and 2, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. That God is still our God, and if He calls us to go, He will be with us. Is it time to live by faith over fear? Number two, is it time to encourage one another is it time to encourage one another verse 24 and 25 remember these people are being persecuted chapter 10 verse 24 and he's going to speak of this mutual encouragement that we need in the midst of our fears and in the midst of our world verse 24 and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works if we're going to encourage one another we have to consider one another the word means to think carefully uh, to be deep in consideration. The faith of others, by the way, ought to be a consideration of our lives. When we look at our own Christian life, the faith of other people ought to be a consideration. We talk about this oftentimes about telling unsaved people about Christ. The faith of other people. That's what that cross over there with those, those ones on there. That's about the faith of other people. We're concerned about the fact this person doesn't have faith. Therefore, they're not saved. But we also ought to be concerned about the fact some people around me claim to have faith and they need my faith and I need their faith. We need to build one another up. Am I going to uh, just think, well, these people are okay. It's just We're going to think about unsaved people. No, my brothers and sisters 
need my faith? Do I consider others when I join a church, when, when I'm in church, my church attendance, when I'm attending church, and I consider about my faithfulness to attend church? Is other, pe- are, is other people's faith considered? Have you ever thought that your faith or lack of either encourages or discourages other people? This is what the writer says. Let us consider one another. And I thank you so much. And I want to be, I just want to take a special moment to say thank you to all of you. But I want to say thank you to our senior citizens. A lot of them are here. A lot of them tend to every service. When I do Sunday night or Wednesday night, they're there almost all the time. They're faithful to give. They're faithful to pray. Thank God for you. You're setting a good example for the rest of us. He says in order. We, we consider one another. Why? Well, there's a purpose. In order to stir up love and good works. Maybe this is why some churches are dead and flat and lifeless because nobody's considering we need to stir one another up. We need to stoke a little fire in the, in the church. There needs to be a little, little fire. We need to get a little fired up about worship and about service. We need to consider others better than ourselves so good works will not be left undone. And he says this, not forsaking others, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves. Now, I'm not saying those who are staying home for health reasons are, are forsaking, but we know forsaking is a big part of the Christian struggle. Forsaking the church is a big part of the Christian struggle. And when I forsake church, the church, I've forsaken Jesus because it's his body. But listen, not only have I forsaken Jesus, I've forsaken other people. Because God sent me to be a part of a people. God didn't send me to be part of an organization. He sent me to be part of a people. And, and we're, to, we're to not forsake that because we see the day approaching. Notice, this is interesting, this verse, but exhorting one another, so much more you see the day is approaching. So we're to exhort one another. That's a very interesting word. It's a word related to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is... The Greek word, the parakletos, this is a parakleo. It means to come alongside. It's like the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're to come alongside and urge one another to keep running. Urge one another to keep fighting the good fight. Urge one another to keep believing, to keep trusting, to take that next step of faith, to run towards the finish line and just run so hard till you break the tape and Jesus just takes you up to heaven. It's this exhortation. We need to see believers worshiping, serving, people with some fire in them to long to get back to worship and long to get back to fellowship and long to get back to the study of God's Word. And he says here, as we see the day approaching, how many times have you seen on Facebook, you heard people talk about it? Hey man, is COVID a sign of the end? Well, if it is, it hadn't woke many of us up. If you think you can see the day approaching through COVID, why aren't you more fired up? That's what this is about. We see this day approaching, and it's not, but it's a sure picture of what could come. It's a sure picture. It's a sign. It's one of these coming attractions, man. It's like that, it's like that one-minute preview at the movie. You didn't watch the movie, but you got a preview of what's coming. We need to urge each other on. Thirdly, is it time to benefit our spiritual lives. And by this I mean our own personal spiritual lives. I talked about benefiting others just then. What about our own spiritual life? Here's a question. This is where you get to answer. Does worship, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the ministry of the Word of God benefit your spiritual life? 
The Bible says here we're to draw near. We have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This means we have boldness to go to God himself. That's the picture. As a Christian, I have, I have boldness to go into God's very presence because the blood of Jesus was shed for me. When I worship, when I sing, when I pray, when I set my mind on God, I get into God's presence. See, I don't believe I ever pray alone because God's with me. And I go to God's throne of grace, which he talks about in chapter 4. And, and so I, by that blood of Jesus that he shed on Calvary, I have access to the eternal God of heaven. The only way I've had access, by the way, no one can enter God's presence by his good works or his good life or, or what he thinks he's done. You don't get to God's presence by baptism. You get to God's presence by the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. So we have boldness to come. And he says, therefore, he's made this new and living way. The, the, the Hebrews had an old dead way. The Christian has a new and living way. The Hebrews had sacrifices that were burned up and consumed and they were gone. They had to get more. We have a sacrifice that went to the cross, was shed his blood, was slaughtered, laid in the grave. And then up from the grave he arose. He's a new and living way. And we get to come to him and we worship. But notice, he ties all this to corporate worship. Not just individual. See, America, we like to think of everything as just individualistic. But he ties this right into the fact that we have a high priest over the house of God. Therefore, we're not to forsake that house of God because when we get to that house of God, we're going to draw near to him. He tells us here to draw near. So let me ask another question. What helps us draw near more than corporate worship? You ever had a rough week spiritually? You come to worship and all of a sudden, man, God just meets you. All week long, you hadn't heard from God. All week long, you've been distant. Even though you tried to pray, but, you know, your prayers didn't get to the ceiling. But you come to worship, and God speaks to you. What, what encourages us more than the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God? What encourages us more than experiencing God's presence with His people? Every major call in my life, happened in a corporate worship setting. God called me out of that darkness that we talked about earlier. I was sitting in a church service, lost as a ball in high weeds, man. And God spoke life to me. God called me to preach. I was sitting in a corporate worship service. God called me to move my family and go off to college. I was sitting in a corporate worship service. God spoke clearly to my life and told me, and many other times God spoke to me. There's many times we're singing and God will speak to me right down there. What, what, what benefits our life more than drawing near to God with his people in the house of God? And how long can we go without it? God knows and some people say, well, is it, is it just legalism we go to church? Is, does God just want us to do it because he said do it? Listen, God knows we need it. God knows we need the fellowship. God knows we need the encounter of the people. God knows we need the word of God preached to us. That's why he gave apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. Because we need the word of God spoken to us. Some of you even here today are here. And many of you listening can remember a time when you longed to go to church. But maybe not so much anymore. And to use a COVID illustration or a COVID metaphor, some of us might find our spiritual lives are on a ventilator.
Jude 20 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You know what that passage says? That we're each individually responsible for our spiritual lives when we get saved. Build yourself up. Just like I've been telling you about this, all this deal out in America that's going on with all these riots and all this stuff, it's people who don't want to take personal responsibility. Well, let me tell you something. Every soul will be accountable to God, and every Christian is accountable to grow. Every Christian is accountable to grow. Every Christian is to grow in their faith. God's given you everything you need for life and godliness, and you and I are to grow in it. We're to add to our faith. We're to grow in our faith. We're to stir up ourselves. We're to build up ourselves in our most holy faith. And to do that... We're to draw near, but we're also to cast off. Notice, he doesn't just stop with drawing near to God. And this is what happens when you draw near to God. Let us draw near, uh, verse 22 there, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So draw near. But here's what happens when you do. When you draw near to God, here's what's going to happen. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The first thing that's going to happen is God's going to do some work on the inside, start cleaning you up. That's what this picture is. These pictures are of Old Testament priests sprinkling. But he says, listen, that's, that sprinkling of, on, is Old Testament, but God works on your conscience. He begins to work on the inward man. He begins to cleanse you and work, and, and he begins to work inside of you in the thought life and the, the things you have in your heart. You hear something in the scripture, I, I can't tell you how many times, how many times people have told me, uh, one little thing I said in the message, that's all they could think about. Because why? Because God spoke about that. God starts cleaning on the inside. But listen, not only when he cleans on the inside, something happens on the outside. Look what he says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This again is that Old Testament ritual of sprinkling and they would wash themselves before they went into the presence of God. Listen, God starts working on your life. He works on the inside and it's reflected on the outside. Don't tell me God's done a work on the inside if you're still just as filthy on the outside as you ever was. God's going to clean that up. God's going to clean the life of sin up. God's going to clean the life up. He's going to clean that life and wash that. Our bodies picture this outward change. Now imagine, and I'm not being judgmental because I'm human myself, and I don't think bad of anyone who's listening today, even someone in this room, but I'm human and I'm a shepherd, and I imagine there's some of us, particularly those who haven't been in church in four or five months, that are dealing with some sin in your life that's returned maybe it's returned and you thought you had gotten over it you thought you had won the victory but there's some sin in your life that's risen up or maybe some sin in your life that was a struggle but now it's it's gotten much worse why well your minds haven't been cleansed your hearts haven't been touched and your body hasn't been washed you're being overcome in a trespass. Listen, I read it again this morning. Just got an email this morning about it. All for months I've been reading it. How online church attendance. It was all great. Hallelujah. Everybody's going to church online. That thing is dropping every week. Less and less people are attending. Less and less people are watching. Less and less people can't watch through the whole service. Less and less this. Less and less that. Sin abounds. And listen, we have people in our church. We have people in the church and people in the world. That during this COVID thing, their lives are falling apart. The facade you had up is coming down. And you need to run to the master and build your life on him. Some of you listening, maybe in this room and maybe even watching online, let's just be honest. 
told you I like facts and I liked honesty. Some of us weren't very strong to begin with. And COVID hit. And now we're rocked. Our world, spiritual world's dying. We're on that ventilator. David Jeremiah in his study Bible says this, your ability to stay the course in your Christian life is directly related to your participation in the body of Christ. And because God designed us as Christians to be an assembly, when we're not assembling, we cease to be what we were designed to be. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says it this way, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, some of us are losing our saltiness. And if you lose it, Jesus said you're no good except to be thrown out. The church is going to let its corporate lamp be put out if we're not careful. So, we need to benefit our spiritual lives. Number four, this is related to discipline ourselves to godliness. To discipline ourselves to godliness. Listen, godliness does not come natural even for the Christian. A godly life is not a natural life. Listen to me. Because you do what I do for a living doesn't mean godliness comes natural. Godliness comes natural for no human being. Godliness is the work of God, the continual work of God in your life to conform you to the image of His Son. And that is not natural. Paul writes about it this way. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, the second part of that verse, exercise yourself. There it is again, that personal responsibility. Exercise yourself toward godliness. The ESV says it this way, train yourselves for godliness. The New American Standard, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The Christian life is a life where you have to discipline yourself. If you're going to get sin out of your life and keep sin out of your life, you won't do it haphazardly and you won't do it lazily. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Look at this. But I discipline my body. Now, if you have the King James, I think it says, I beat my body. It pictures the effort taken to get his body under control where he could live for God. So I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. It pictures the discipline of bad things out of my life, but also, listen, it pictures the discipline of good things into my life. And worship and fellowship is one of the things I have to discipline into my life. And I say this because I've talked to people on the phone and I've talked to some of you. People have told me that these three or four months has, has made them lazy. It would be hard to fathom how lazy this has made American people. We must return and get ourselves back to the disciplined life of a godly life. And by the way, some people think they're living a good life. I want to tell you something. God's not called you to live a good life. God's called you to live a godly life. If you live a godly life, you'll live a good life. A lot of people go to hell living a good life. God's called you to live a godly life. If you live a godly life, you'll live a good life and more. 
We need to return to the regular observance of the Lord's day, getting ourselves out of bed, getting ourselves out of our sleep pants, getting our families ready for church, and getting to God's house. Discipline our children, discipline ourselves, dress ourselves, the faithful, regular discipline of God's day. That's why God set a day, not just randomly. He set a day. He's marked it out. He's given the church the call together. It is part of what he's called us to do. It's a way we put off this world. Just think about it. The world just runs our lives all the time. And when we say, no, this is God's day, this is God's time, I'm putting the world aside, I'm putting the world off, I'm disciplining myself to live a godly life, and part of worship, and part of godly life is worship and fellowship and the word of God. Number five. To express our love to Christ. The greatest command God's given us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Listen, a Christian should love Christ. Paul even says if anyone does not love Christ, uh, let him be accursed. A Christian should love Christ. But not just love Christ sort of sentimentally. Like I remember when I was in Bible school and he saved me. No, love Christ actually. Listen, your wife don't want you to love her sentimentally. Your husband don't want you to love him sentimentally. He wants you to love him right now. That's the way Jesus wants you to love him right now, continually. And worship and the discipline of our lives is an expression of my love to Jesus. And we express that by obeying him. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Not a burden to obey God because we love him. We express our love to Him. We want to be known as one who loves God. And in expressing our love to Christ and obeying His commands, God works on our behalf. He's promised. We, people love Romans 8, 28. It's a famous verse. A lot, a lot of people love it. Look at it. For we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people quote that first part. All things work together for the good to those who love God little caveat there. Those who are called according to God's purpose to know Him, to be conformed to the image of His Son, to bring Him glory in this life. God's working for those who love Him. The obedience, the faith, the worship, the giving, the praying, the listening to His Word. And when you love Him, you will do what's necessary. I thought this week as we gathered for VBS, I was grateful we gathered. But my mama used to have a saying, she used to tell us, where there's a will, there's a way. There's a will to do VBS, so we got it done. There's a will to love God, you'll get it done. There's a will to be in the house of God, you'll get it done. You'll find a way. People say, well, my kids, you don't have all the stuff for my kids. You got two parents, one of you stay home, come one week, one of you come the next, whatever. Figure it out, man. Do what God says, obey God. When you love God, His commandments are not burdensome. Have you ever read the Psalms and you read the, the Old Testament history where they were carried away? You remember the Babylonian captivity? David was sometimes away from Jerusalem. He was running from Saul for a long time. He was running from Absalom. His son hiding from Absalom because he didn't want to kill Absalom. And you read some of these Psalms, and so that's the context of some of them. And it's so amazing to me to read these Psalms because when they were in Babylon, the temple had been destroyed. And you know what they cried about most? 
that they couldn't go back to the temple, that they couldn't worship. I read at the start of this service, I read Psalms 84, but look at it again. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. These people are longing. They can't get there, but they're longing for it. Some of you heard about, many of you probably heard about John MacArthur's church in California this week, what they did. And the, uh, the government is, you know, told the churches they can't meet, can't gather, they can't sing and all this mass gatherings. And so they had church, praise God. But he, I, I didn't know the story. I had watched him preach a few times, not very often, but he did a live stream. So during their service time, they just held the service. Nobody in the building but him and a few other staff and his wife, and he would preach. They did that for like two or three weeks. Like all of us, we didn't know what this was going to be. By the way, those people talking about it still don't know what this is going to be. So he said about the third or fourth week, people started showing up. Church members just started coming in and participating. And every week, more and more people just started coming. More and more people. It's California, man. You know, it's, it's a hot spot. You can't do it. They just kept coming. They just kept coming. Every week, more people came, he said. They had, I think they had a vacation Bible school. They had some children's ministry that previous week. 350 kids were in that building. Their parents brought them. Last week when he met and preached, and you go listen to his sermon, we must obey God rather than men. 3,000 people sat there and worshiped the Lord. Why? I believe they had a zeal for God's house. And I want to tell you something. A zeal for God's house is characteristic of those who love God. Remember what they said about Jesus? Jesus goes in, the, John chapter 2, turns over the money changer tables. The disciples are thinking about the scriptures. They, they remembered Psalm 69, 9. They said this in John 2, 17 about Jesus. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. The Messiah, the Savior who loved God, who obeyed God, was consumed with God's house. And we need to get to loving God that we will be consumed with worshiping the Lord. So, um, it's call and it's the love of God it's the way we express our faith in Christ our love to Christ finally the last thing is this to give witness to our world the church is the light of the world and the light must shine and one way we shine is gathered corporate worship I read the quote this morning from A.W. Tozer a scared world needs a courageous church in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 remember Jesus told the apostles you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the world. So he sent them out. And guess what happens when they go out? They go out and they win people to Jesus. And you know what happens when you win people to Jesus? Those people start churches. That's one of the ways you know somebody actually got one to Jesus is they, they go to church. They start churches. So they start churches. And then they move on. And all of a sudden you got churches, more than one. You got church in Jerusalem. You got church in Samaria. You got church in... Judea, you got churches spread out. Then you start reading and you look, there's these churches in all these cities. Why? Because they went, they won people and they started churches. And those churches started meeting and they had public gatherings and they became known as the church of Ephesus and the church of Corinth and, and, and the church in Galatia and the church here and the church there. Why? Because they met and they gathered and they worshiped and they served God. And this church here is called to bear witness to Christ verbally and visually. We are to tell it, we are to manifest it. 
We're to live it. People around us are perishing. People around us are lost and undone in sin. Many are scared, afraid, blinded by the enemy, and they need to see some people who will take God at his word and live by faith. Our personal and corporate witness is needed now as much as any time in our lifetimes, I believe. Right now. Our gathering is more important right now, maybe, than any time in our lifetime. So I'm asking you, those of you here, those of you listening, will you make a commitment to ask God this, is it time?